word will be what is heard today. Over, over all of our voices, over all of our thoughts, over all of our ideas, may we hear your spirit speaking to us. And regardless where we are in our, our journey with you, may this be a place where we continue to meet and commune with you, our Lord. We ask that these written words that we look at on a page, that they would become alive as they are empowered by you, the living word, to speak to us across the the centuries and millennia, inspired by your hand and your heart, whispered and and spoken into the the mind and heart of, of those who you used to preserve your message. And may we hear, may we be warned, may we be encouraged, may we be uh, edified and challenged. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. If you, you remember from the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the epistle of Jude. Uh, Jude is uh, Jesus' half-brother. Um, and James, the, the epistle of James, is written very early in the development of the church. Um, and it addresses some issues. And James was Jesus' uh, half-brother, uh, or Jacob, uh, which is his, his Hebrew name, Yaakov. Um, and then Jude is written toward the end of the first century. After all the apostles have, have, uh, have, uh, have been either persecuted or died of natural causes, except, uh, except for John, who is still alive and probably lives to be uh, close to 100. But Jude is taking up the cause... He talks about the, the, taking up the cause of answering some of the false teachers and false leaders that have emerged in the church. Now historically what happened in the church was that early on the church was just focused in Jerusalem. And you can actually see this um, in the book of Acts. Uh, the opening of the book of Acts actually has a map. It describes, not an actual physical map, um, but Luke describes how the church spread. In Acts 1.8, it talks about how uh, the disciples, the apostles, are called to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem, and Samaria, which is uh, kind of the bridge to the Gentile world, and then to the uttermost ends of the world. Well, as the church spread in the Roman world, it was, it was harder and harder for you to be able to go and actually hear from an eyewitness uh, of the ministry of Jesus. And so the apostles started this idea of what's called epistolary ministry. Now, that's a big word. It just means letter writing. They just started writing letters. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, letters are a very uh, developed idea. You didn't just sit there and dash off, hey, how are you? You know, it, it, there was a way to write it, a letter and there was a formal method. And, and some of the New Testament writers are better at that than others. Um, Jude is extremely good at it. He writes a very short, very compact letter um, that's written probably to be read by all of the churches. So it's, it's written to be circulated. Um, and, and, and this was a very common thing. So a, a leader would write a letter, he would send it to a church, and we actually have this with the Apostle Paul. Um, in, in a couple of his letters, he kind of indicates, he's like, okay, you read this letter, but then I also want you to know that I wrote a letter to so-and-so, make sure you read their letter as well. And the idea was these letters were meant to be uh, copied and circulated. Now, some of them were hard to copy. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, those are pretty long. But the rest of them are, are relatively, uh, relatively short, and something like Jude was very easy to copy. 
And so there are many, many copies of Jude. Um, and there are copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. Um, and there's a whole discussion about, about the text of Jude because it got copied so many times. But this was an easy letter to write and it addressed an issue that emerged as that epistle period, as that writing of letters started to kind of drop off. As the apostles were gone, they, the, the leaders had these writings of the apostles, uh, these letters, and, and they were able to recognize that certain ones were definitely authoritative and others weren't so much. And the church started to very much kind of localize. Early on, it was the apostles writing letters, and they're getting circulated around. But as the gospel spread and spread and spread, and remember that the Roman Empire reached from what is today Iraq all the way to Spain, and from what is today northern France and Belgium all the way into southern Morocco. It was a big area. Now, granted, there was a giant you know, sea in the middle, but there's still a lot of area that needed to be covered. And the churches started to localize. And as they localized, bishops started to, or, or uh, pastors basically started to emerge as leaders of large areas with lots of ministers underneath them. Um, and there's a division that happens toward the end of the first century between the episcopus, which is the bishop, which means the overseer, right? and the word bishop is actually a corruption of episcopus, which is Greek. Don't ask me how we got from that to this. Just trust me, we did. All right. And then underneath them, they were called the, the presbyteroi, which were the elders. Well, that's really where we get the word for presbyter or, or eventually priest. comes from that word. Again, English is weird. Don't ask me how it got through there, but it did. And the idea was that there were kind of two tiers of leaders. Well, that was never really what God intended in the New Testament, but it's what happened. Um, and apparently what was happening in the leadership of these, these churches is that there were, there were leaders getting in at various tiers of the church in these local areas and were starting to corrupt and destroy what was happening in those churches. And, and Jude decides that rather than going through detailing every single thing that false leaders might be doing, he sets up a template of what we need to be watching out for because things change. You, you, you sit there and you go, well, you know, if you just make an exhaustive list of all of the, the wrong beliefs that people have, people will definitely follow the right beliefs. And that is never going to happen. All right? If you just start making a list of what's right and what's wrong, it's like, here's a list of everything that's wrong. So this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. When you do this with your kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Inevitably, what do your children do? They, all of them, right? But they find a way to justify their behavior by saying, well, I didn't do what you told me not to do. I just did this, which isn't the same. It's different. Ha ha! And they think they're so smart. Like, ha ha, you can't punish me. I'm like, I'm a parent, I can. Um, you know, it's kind of a situation, but when we always are listing don't, 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 people tend to develop loopholes. They tend to develop what, what we would call hyper-legalism. By, by creating, saying, these are the things that are right, I can find ways to kind of get around it. We can actually enforce the laws rigidly so that we can get away with breaking the laws more often. Right? And Paul actually, the Apostle Paul describes this as those who observe the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. And so these false teachers are doing this. And so he then, Jude, is going to break out a series of 
descriptions in verses 12 through 16 that describe why this is dangerous. What the, what the underlying motivation of these false teachers is and kind of gives us an idea of what to keep our eyes out for that's going on under the surface. Not what's happening on the outside, but what's happening on the inside. So assume we're looking at a situation which looks really good, but feels a little off. And we're going to talk a little bit about that dynamic. But let's just take a look at verse 12. Describing false teachers, he says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast on you or with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Now I'm just going to, I'm going to start with those, that description. The, these are hidden reefs. The, 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 the Greek word there um, only appears here in the, entire, uh, in the entire New Testament. Now, it's a, it's a form of the word that means blemish. Um, and that word, that word does appear. But the particular form that's used here, um, it, the, the reason that it's often translated as hidden reefs, and some versions of the Bible have blemishes or blots, um, that's a funny word, blots. Um, but uh, some of them are different words, but this seems to be an indication of a, a, a danger that you can't see. So it's not a, just a spot, but rather something that is, that is hidden, something that's under the surface. And he begins to describe it, and if, you're, if you want to take notes, you can break these down into three pairs. Hebrew thinkers really like to do pairs, and they like to do sets of three pairs. Why? I don't Not uh, pairs. P-A-I-R-S. Not pairs. P-E-A-R-S. Um, and that only comes to mind because I just watched an episode of Doctor Who where the doctor says, don't eat pears. That, like, it's a, just a random observation. Um, but anyway, uh, verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feast. These are things that look like love. These people look like they're leading the church in worship. They look like they're leading the church in all the right ways. But the reality is that underneath the surface, there's something going on. And so we have to get beneath the surface to see it. Uh, this first set I've called um, the pastoral appetites. Pastoral in, in quotation marks. The, the, and pastoral, that, that word pastor just comes from um, the, the idea of being a shepherd. That's all pastor means. It means shepherd. Pastor, pasture, P-A-S-T-U-R-E, where you keep sheep. That's where that word comes from. Um, people sometimes say, well, pastor isn't a biblical title. And I was like, I beg to differ. Shepherds are all over the Bible. Um, so uh, these, are, these are pastoral appetites. Look at how he says it. He says, they feast with you or on you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. He says that those who should be shepherds are wolves. And they're in the midst of the flock and they are shameless. They are not afraid of the repercussions. They're not reckless. They are intentionally destroying the flock from inside and you can't see it. Why can't you see it? These are people that are not afraid of doing things in public. They are so confident that no one will react to what they're doing. This is a dangerous kind of leader. 
I used to, uh, you know, you, you, you think about confidence. We tend to think of confidence as a good thing, right? But there are, there are people who are so confident that, not that they're doing the right thing, but so confident that no one will question them or resist them that they, in their own minds, become untouchable. Now, I mentioned last week that I was going to mention some illustrations, and I apologize in advance if I offend you by the names that I bring up. Some of them are familiar, and some of them are not. And, but they are all have fallen into a sin that, that aligns with this imagery. In the particular case of somebody so confident that no one will react, no one will respond, if you have ever heard of a church called Mars Hill Church in Seattle... The pastor's name was Mark Driscoll, and he, when he was younger, was one of my heroes. Not because of this, but in the book Blue Like Jazz, he was referred to as the cussing pastor. That was actually a sermon. Now, now, when you go through his archives, there's only like twice that Mark ever actually swore in a sermon, and then he apologized for it. He was a little rough around the edges. But when Driscoll first started out, his entire purpose was to build a church for the unchurched in the most unchurched city in the country. Seattle, Washington, he used to joke around that in Seattle, Washington, there were more pets than Christians, and there were more pets than kids. And, and it was a totally selfish, self-centered thing, and he was a baseball player in college. He wasn't really trained in the Bible, but he had this passion and desire. He started this church, and um, when, I was, when I was really struggling, one of the books that he wrote really encouraged me. It has the strangest title in the world, Confessions of a Reformational Rev. I still don't know what it means. Um, but, but Driscoll was, Driscoll was, uh, he was, he was a good speaker. He would preach for an hour and a half and people stuck around and listened to him. And I thought, wow, this guy is cool. But then along the way, a few years in, I started to say to people, they used to ask me about Driscoll and I started to say, um, uh, somewhere along the line, Driscoll started to believe his own press. He started to believe that everybody said about him, that he was a rock star. That everything he said was good. Everything he said was right. Everything he said was perfect. And those that resisted him, he ruthlessly, and I mean ruthlessly, would destroy them. Because how dare they oppose God's man. And not surprisingly, a few years ago, uh, Driscoll was removed. He, he technically stepped down. But in reality, he was removed from the church because he had actually gone online, created a pseudonym, and was viciously attacking the, the men and women of his church um, under this pseudonym, William Wallace II. Not my dog, all right? William Wallace, Robert Bruce Wayne, White Light Zoo, Sean DeVitro would never do that because he can't talk um, to you. But uh, he, you know... Driscoll, Driscoll fell into the belief of believing that anything he did was okay because no one would dare to challenge him. Now, now Mark has, has since um, been restored to ministry, and I'm not passing judgment, I'm just telling you what happened. He became a false teacher. Let me tell you what he did. And I have heard the recording of this. He started to talk in one of his sermons in front of 15,000 people about how God had given him a vision. He was counseling a man and a woman, and while he was counseling, God gave them a vision of the hotel room that the woman was having an affair in, and he started to describe the bedspreads and the, and the wallpaper colors and what was happening and what she was wearing. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I started to ask a lot of questions about whether he was in that room or not. Now, whether he did anything wrong or anything, and, and Mark, by the way, he used to talk about how smoking hot his wife was, and I used to always tell people, I was like, you will never hear those words from me because it's none of your business how, if my wife is smoking hot or not. Look at your own wife, not mine. But Driscoll fell into this, and he began to consume the very people that he was supposed to be entrusted with to the point that there were actual whole websites of hundreds of people that were banding together online trying to recover from the abusive situation at that church. And when Mark resigned, and this is all a matter of public record, I'm not telling you anything that isn't out there on the media. When Mark resigned, the entire thing fell apart. It was built entirely on his ego and his ability and he was destroying people's lives. I don't think he was doing it on purpose. I don't think he was being malicious. But he just was never called into question. And he became not afraid of doing things because no one was going to react. Now, why don't people react to abusive leadership? There's usually two reasons. Now, there's lots of other reasons, but there are usually two reasons. One, people are terrified of abusers. Abusers are scary. They're abusers. So a lot of people won't respond to abusive behavior because they're afraid that that abuser is going to do harm to them. But there are also a lot of people that are afraid to respond, to be honest, because if they respond, the abuser is so good at manipulating the people that won't fight him that abusers will often accuse their abusers of the behavior that they're conducting. And because they are forceful and confident and controlling, everybody listens. That's actually what happened with Driscoll. There were several pastors in that church who resigned and protested, and you know what Driscoll said? Well, that's because they're doing this. They're the ones at fault. And people listened. Eventually, thankfully, the Holy Spirit worked. And I, and I pray for Mark. I pray that he's been restored. I've heard some sermons that he's preached in the last couple of years. He seems to have really learned his lesson and hopefully um, continues to be a profitable member of the Church of Christ. But people, the, these people who are wolves in, in, sheep's, in shepherd's clothing, people trust them. It must be right because they're in leadership. They wouldn't be in leadership if they didn't always do things right. Now, right there should be a rule. All right? Leaders are not perfect. Hopefully they're better at doing the right thing all the time, but that doesn't mean they always do the right thing. It doesn't mean that they can't be called to account. And they were consuming the ones they should be protecting. See, here's the danger of leadership in Christian leader. Here's the danger of leadership. We are called not to protect the strong, but to protect the weak. But the problem is that the weak are the ones that are the easiest to prey upon. I have a dear friend in the Concord State Prison right now for multiple charges of a sexual assault on a, on a young teenage girl who came to him for counsel as a pastor. He said, Pastor, I need help. 
And I wept when I watched the news coverage of my friend in being arrested. People say, you know, well, you know, that had never happened to me. Don't you believe that for a second? Leadership is where we tend to the weak. And if we don't have proper accountability, if we're not careful, they become the prey. So these are people in power, and power feeds appetites, and they fall. Originally, these people were shepherds. They were doing the job. They were put in leadership. And yet here they are. And Jude is calling them out. Look at the second list, the second set of two. He says, They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Now these are farming analogies. I worked on orchards when I was a teenager. I know all about dead trees not producing fruit. I hated working. I worked on a peach orchard. If you haven't heard this story, there is no job, farming job, more miserable than peach orchards because that fuzz on those peaches gets into everything. Your eyes, your mouth, your face, your pores. And if you accidentally scratch it, it is like a million splinters in your body. You say, well, it's just peach fuzz. I'm just telling you was the worst job I ever had. It, that was the job I worked through the middle of summer in New Jersey, 100 degrees outside in the sun for the rest of the summer wearing gloves, a long sleeve shirt, a mask, a hat. The, literally the only thing that was visible of me was my eyes because I hated that stuff so much. Never more thankful for apple when the apple season started because apples don't attack you like that. These two farming analogies. First, he talks about empty clouds, right? Uh, waterless clouds swept along by winds. Well, as a farmer, you wait for the clouds because the clouds are the water. They're going to bring life to your, your produce, right? So it has, all the, it has all the look of it's going to be a blessing. It's going to be extraordinary. God is, is going to pour out on us the, what we need to grow. But then the cloud just blows by and never comes. You spend your whole time waiting to receive from the cloud, but it never gives you the life-giving water. And you dry up. And then he says, they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Waited all year for those trees to bring fruit. Now, if you, you work in orchards at all, and I don't know whether you've done this, and this is an illustration that may not work, but you know, when you go, you know how when you go to like pick apples, they'll tell you which aisles you can pick apples from, like which rows? It's because you plant your, your you get your apples, you intentionally find apples that are going to kind of, they're going to, you don't want all the apples to get ripe all at the same time. You want this group to get ripe and then this group to get ripe. So you have apples all season, right? So this is how you do. So he's describing a church, a, 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 a tree that all year long, right, the, the orchard owner is waiting for that tree to bring fruit. And he gets all the way to the end of season, late autumn, when we should be picking, you know, pumpkins. He's waiting for that last bit and there's no fruit. And the reason for there's no fruit is that it's twice dead. Not only are the roots dead, it's uprooted, but, but the, the ability for it to produce uh, fruit is dead. 
uh, we had an apple tree in the corner of our, our uh, the parsonage that I just cut down. It hadn't, it, it had just been producing like disgusting crab apples when we, when we moved in and then it just produced nothing and then eventually it started to die and I cut it down and now it's sitting in a pile because I have a battery powered uh, chainsaw and it can't cut through it because applewood is apparently too hard for my, it works great on cardboard, I don't know what the deal is. Anyway, um, you know, this, this, this idea, he's waited and waited. You sit there waiting for the fruit. You think the fruit is going to come, right? But it never comes because it's dead. He said, these, these false leaders, they, keep, they give you the appearance of blessing. They give you the appearance of providing for you. They give you the appearance of sustenance. But then it never happens. And you spend every day going, maybe I'll get something. Maybe, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one that's, I, I'm not listening correctly. I'm not hearing properly. Maybe, maybe if I just, um, if I just, you know, I, I, if I could just, um, if I could just get in the right frame of mind, the fruit would appear. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen all the time. And they string along the, the, their followers. They keep telling them, oh, it's coming, it's coming. There's going to be a blessing. It's going to be coming. Keep giving. Keep contributing. Keep watching. Keep doing it. And God's going to provide. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm just going to name a network. Every single teacher on Daystar does this. Oh, I hate. I'm about to rail. All right, got to get up on the soapbox. I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate everything about it because it's a lie. Well, if you just give $10 and you give it faith, with faith, God will give you $1,000 in return. And when God doesn't give you that $1,000, He says to you, they time it. They've got it worked down. They say, well, that's because you didn't give it with enough faith. Give another $10. Maybe give more dollars. Maybe give $100. Maybe mortgage your house and give the money to me and God will bless you that way. And they keep piling on. They keep saying the blessing's coming, blessing's coming. And they trunk out people like, oh, I praise God. I sent $50 into uh, brother so-and-so's, brother Copeland's uh, thing and he bought a, a beautiful 23 million dollar gulf stream jet so he could travel around the country and preach to the world and isn't it a blessing and, and god has blessed me so much because of it no he hasn't that man is stealing from you you don't know kenneth copeland actually was on tv in a discussion talking about he doesn't travel in commercial airlines because he doesn't want to be trapped in a steel tube with demons and when he was confronted by the news media about calling people demons, he yelled in the face of the reporter and then immediately slapped a rubber smile on his face and said, Jesus loves you. The prosperity gospel is a lie. If God, God never promised that you would be happy, healthy, and rich, he promised that you would live as Christ. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Christ suffered. The world turned on him. Nobody wants to read that part in Romans. Everybody wants to read, well, all things work together for the those that love God. They don't read the fact that in the previous verses, he talked about how you will suffer. That you will groan under the, the misery while you wait for the adoption of sons. Get off my soapbox. If you've got a preacher that keeps promising you fulfillment, he keeps promising you the good things are just around the boy, just keep giving, just keep doing this. God is going to bless you. He, you just have to have more faith in me. You've got to have faith in me. And I'm sorry if I offend you, but that's not the gospel. It says they look alive. 
They put on a superficial show. I hate the term. Sorry, I'm using the word hate too much. I hate the term worship experience. We have an experience. The lights are going to go down. The boot whiz bang is going to go off. Fireworks. People are going to slide in on zip lines playing the guitar. It's going to be it's going to be like a Motley Crue concert. The drummer's going to go up on a thing. He's going to start rotating around. It's going to be if you never you don't know what I'm talking about. Don't worry about it. Google it. Um, you know it's going to be amazing. The preacher is always so wound up and isn't this extraordinary? And it's so entertaining. Worship is not an experience for you. That is a false lie that you come to church to worship to feel better about yourself. Worship is about us bowing before a transcendent God who chose to love us and expressing our thanksgiving and praise and blessing His name, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. They look alive. They put on a show. But really, they're just cut off and fruitless. They tell you, oh, you can have everything if you just trust me for one more day. Be aware of any false teacher. Any teacher who gives you a superficial thing but just keeps telling you, well, it's just around the corner, just, just a little bit more. It's just a little... Guys, trust the guy that's honest. Trust, trust a preacher who says to you, I'm broken, I'm failed, but I love Jesus. I'm not just talking, don't, don't put this just, oh, well, he's just talking about, I'm not talking about me, although I'm very good at being broken, very good at being wrong. I excel at being wrong. I do it so often. But when we, we get into looking, we look to leaders, and we read books, and we study things, and we go, oh, man, this guy promises me this. Be aware that there is appeal and appearance, and then there is substance and truth. And they are, sometimes the guys that look good actually have substance. And sometimes the ones that look good, they're vapid. They've got nothing. But they appeal to your desires. The Bible describes them. The Apostle Paul describes a generation where people keep up teachers having itching ears, telling you all the things you think you should hear about the Bible about Jesus, about what He wants for you. And then he brings a third analogy, a third set. He says these are wild or rogue or animalistic waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They are wandering stars. That the word wandering is the word we get planet from. From whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are... These are nautical descriptions. He's described the sheep and the shepherd. He's described the farm and the, and the wind and the trees. And now he talks about being on a boat. You've ever been on a boat where a rogue wave hit? It's a wave that you, you didn't expect. Things are going a certain way. A wave comes along and smashes the boat broadside. The thing shakes and shimmies and does all kinds of crazy things. My father, when I was growing up, we lived in New Jersey. My dad had this friend, Charlie Horton. Charlie Horton was an old Navy man from World War II. He had a fishing boat and for some imperceptible reason, loved to fish in New York Harbor. Apparently he liked toxic fish. 
And they would sail out, and I don't remember where it was that we went, but we would go in the New York Harbor, and we would be there. And we were, we were on this little boat. I don't even know how big it was. We were with uh, Charlie and my dad and this, this guy named Schulter who was a few chicken nuggets short of a Happy Meal. And... Um, <laughs> We're on this. We're on this thing, and and I'm not exaggerating. Nicole knew him. He can tell you. She can tell you. Um, but we're on this boat, and we're socked in with fog in New York Harbor. And Charlie, who is a skilled 60 years worth of, of naval and nautical knowledge, Charlie's on that boat, and he's going, I don't even, I don't even dare. I'm just going to stay still. I don't know what's going on. I can't see. You know, this boat doesn't have radar. Where, you know, these big boats are coming in and out. I'm really concerned. And Schulter sits in the back, and he goes, I have never seen a pastor want to do physical violence faster than Charlie when that happened. He was going to throw the man overboard. He was so furious. But while we were out on that water, suddenly we kind of, Charlie went, uh-oh. Now when old sea dog goes, uh-oh, the landlubber pastor and his teenage son go. And apparently Charlie had heard a large boat go by. We were socked in by fog. We couldn't see anything. He said, brace. And when we did, it was because the wake of that ship was coming. And it hit us, and we rolled up. You ever been on a boat where it does the sideways thing? You're like, look, the ocean. And then we came back over and then crashed back down. And then the other side of the wake came through, and we went up and back down. Well, the, the problem is sailing in the Mediterranean, when, when you get hit by a rogue wave, which generated by anything, it could be generated by an earthquake, it could just be a storm somewhere else, it's just coming from nowhere, that rogue wave hits you and you're in a sailing vessel that has to stay within eyesight of the coast because you have no magnetic compasses, you have no maps, you, you, you're literally navigating by the stars and that wave comes and hits you and spins you around twirls you around. Now the description, the only other place that I could find in ancient literature where the term that's used here was used, it's used to describe uh, the Persian fleet. Herodotus describes it, describes a Persian fleet off the coast of, of Greece and that a storm rose up in the night, a rogue storm with no cause rose up in the night and sunk a number of the ships. And Herodotus actually concludes so that there were just about the same number of Persians as there were Greeks when they fought. And the idea was it just came out of nowhere. It surprised everybody. It destroyed part of the Persian fleet. A rogue wave. Power with no reason, no balance, no purpose, no control. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about power that just does whatever it wants from wherever it wants, whenever it wants. Recklessness. And then he describes them as unreliable wandering stars. The planets. You can't navigate using the planets. Because the planets move around. They're actually called in Greek, planetes in Greek means the wanderers. Asteris planetes. The wandering stars. You don't navigate using the planets. You navigate using the north star because it stays in the same place. You navigate using the constellations because you over experience and years have learned that the Big Dipper is over there during the fall and we can use that and, you know, they do stuff. Ask Leo. He knows how to do it. I don't know how to do it. 
I, I'm lucky navigating to the edge of my property at night. Um, but, but he, you know, this, this whole thing, it's like, all right, this is, this, and, and what's happening? They're getting spun around and they're getting false guidance. They're power without reason. They're unreliable guides. And what happens when you're trapped in that, then you're willing to trust anything that looks reliable. And guess who that feeds to? The very ones who are getting you lost. The very ones who, the, the wave that knocked you out, now you're trying to follow a, a, a guide star that's not going to direct you anywhere. You're going to be stuck in darkness forever. Why does he say that? Jude says, and he talks about the writings of the apostles. He says, because the scriptures are stable. They're solid. They're reliable. I had a pastor friend. I'm not going to name his name. Good guy. But every single year he went to another conference and he acquired a new metaphor and completely revamped his entire church because that was the one that was going to work that was going to be the one that was going to grow his church and he couldn't figure out why people kept leaving listen i'm not the most experienced pastor in the world with 17 years of experience i'm nowhere near the most experienced person but i did discover something along the way and it is this it is more important to be consistent and simple than it is to constantly change and be inviting. I, 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 get, I get, sometimes, I get it, that people go, why don't we change things up a little bit? You know, Pastor, it wouldn't hurt if you occasionally brought, I mean, some of the most memorable sermons, I get it, some of the most memorable sermons I've ever done were things where I brought bananas on the stage and I did this, and why don't you do that? Why don't you do that every week? First of all, I'm too lazy to be that creative. But secondly, it's not me. I talk. I'm a professional talker. It's what I do. I, I, I want to look at the scriptures. I want to study. It's like we could do all kinds of whiz-bang. We could have a 46-piece ensemble up here if we wanted to. We could do all kinds of stuff. But the problem is we need to be consistent because when people get cast about, by the ocean. When the rogue waves hit, guess what they need? They need a north star. They need a guide. They need the truth. They don't need to be wandering around following me in the darkness. They need to be able to find Christ. It was also about these, I promise I'm almost done. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all that harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you get the point? Jude is saying these things are ungodly. This kind of leadership is steering people away from God. It might be building churches. It might be building ministries. It might be building Gulf Stream jets. But it's not stirring people toward Christ. And just because something has a church on a name is like the word organic. Somebody's like, oh, I only eat organic food. Genius. Organic means it's made with carbon. All living things are organic. It's the definition of the word. It doesn't mean anything. I was like, well, that doesn't, means it doesn't have any pesticides. That's not what organic means. Organic means made of carbon. That's actually organic chemistry. It's a whole branch of chemistry. The other branch being non-organic chemistry. And that's the limit of what I remember from my 11th grade chemistry class. 
Then he describes them. He says this. He says they're ungodly. He says, and here's, here's the real catch. What's their real motivation? He says, you see everything. You see, when you look underneath the surface, they look good, but then we notice all the stuff that's going on. What's their real motivation? He says, they are grumblers. They are malcontents. They are following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters. I'm glad he added the boaster part because I'm a loud mouth. But they added, they are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. I joke around about never, ever, ever using my name in ministry. I don't want to be ericdevitro.org. First of all, no one would ever spell the domain right. But I don't, I don't want my name on boards and buses. I don't want to be the one that everybody looks at and goes, oh, you've got to come to this church. Our pastor is the greatest person ever. I still remember Bob Bragdon recurring to me as a young, cool, hip person. And I did not know what to do with that, that statement. I, 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 am, I, I, don't, I don't want this to be about me. And I get it. The pastor's up in front all the time and he's the one that talks for 45 minutes to an hour. And, and I get that. And, and, and I'm on the elder board and I'm on all this stuff and, and everybody goes, but the fact of the matter is, this is not about everything I want. It's not about gaining advantage. It's not about consuming people. It's not about being able to boast. And again, classifies a whole lot of false leaders in the name of Christianity today. When I, was, when I was in college, the big thing was boasting about the square footage of your building. Oh, we just put on a 70,000 square foot building. We put on only floors and screens. Before that, when my dad was in college, it was how many buses were you running? Oh, we were running 733 buses all through the Minneapolis area. We were kids eating goldfish. This is amazing. I'm not joking. I went to a church in Maryland where the big thing to attract all the kids was that if we got this many buses in, one of the leaders would swallow a goldfish. And you're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Oh, it's not the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I see churches giving away TVs, handing out money, getting butts in seats. I had a pastor in New Hampshire tell me that my job was to get butts in seats as a pastor. That's your whole job. That's the gospel. I'm like, really? Are you listening to yourself? You just defined the gospel with the word but. (laughs) Desires. Shouting down the opposition. Gaining advantage. Having control. Ego. Look at my church. Look at how we've progressed. Isn't it awesome what God has been doing through me? And you too can be a part of that if you only give this much and bring two people and then those two people bring two people. And That's called, by the way, a pyramid scheme. The Gospel is not a pyramid scheme. The Gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, raised, and coming again. The Gospel is you are a sinner... That's not a positive message. You are broken and you need a healer. The gospel is you are out of sync with God, but thankfully God the Son died on a cross and was raised again to bring you back into harmony with God. The gospel is the Holy Spirit will do in you, the believer, what you cannot do for yourself, what your pastor cannot accomplish for you. He is at work in you. That's the gospel. The gospel is the church, a bunch of disparate people, Gentiles and Jews, people with different colors, 
colors of melanin, people with different creeds from different jobs and different economic brackets, all coming together for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that purpose is not Eric DeVitro, it is not Bedford Road, it is Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. Stop listening to the false teachers that are distracting us from being the church of God. It's not a joke. And it's not an exaggeration. Our purpose is to call people to Christ. Now some of you are going to go, well, Eric was really worked up on Sunday. A couple years before he does that again. Can I just tell you something? This is always, and my wife will tell you, this is always boiling. The fact that I don't do this every Sunday. Because the only thing that matters to me at Bedford Road is not the budget, it's not the end product, it's not whether the band sounds good or not, it's not whether things work according to my, my plans. It is, was Jesus Christ lifted up above all of our egos as the only one who matters? And you can sing a song I absolutely hate. I'm not saying that Caitlin did that. I'm just going to cover this. You can sing a song I could absolutely hate, but if it brought us closer to Christ, it's a blessing to me. You can preach a message that absolutely would not be the way that I would preach a message, but if it brings us to Christ, that's all that matters. The screens can go, the instruments can go, the sound system can go, the chairs can go, our comfort can go, our property can go. We could lose all of our budget, not have any offerings, and I'd have to work a full-time job doing something I hate so that I'd be able to preach the gospel. But with all of that gone, I hope and pray that we would still be here for Him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, you know that the thing called Christianity in this world today is filled with false teachers and false leaders and publishing companies and music industries that sell a product that has no resemblance to what you want us to be. We repent of the sin of looking toward other shepherds, letting the wolves consume us, Letting, letting the desires of others rule over us. Hearing the voices of those who are confident but not trusting you. Father, may we always be about Jesus. No matter what happens, no matter how the chips fall, no matter whether we ever succeed in the world's eyes, may we look to Him. And Father, may those who are not followers of Christ who come and worship with us see us giving glory and praise to Him alone and be called to love Him, to follow Him, to serve Him. In our brokenness, may we be messages and fragments of the kingdom, echoes of Your grace. And that the only praise that comes out is to Your name. We pray this all. Jesus to you, through our Holy Spirit, to the Father, through the Holy Spirit, we pray that it may always be so. And together we say, Amen.
my brothers and sisters.